Well, good morning. I'm Steve. Right back at you. All right. Well, we come again to the Gospel of Mark, and today's text is found in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And it goes like this. And as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Let me begin by telling you the story of John Edward Jones. This takes place about 15 years ago. And when he was a child, uh, John's father used to take him and his brothers down uh, into the caves of Utah. Uh, and they loved to explore uh, underground and through the passages. And he and his brothers began to love the beauty of the darkness below the earth. And so fast forward when he's 26 years old, John returned home to Utah for Thanksgiving and the family decided to explore some caves just as a way to enjoy the memories of their childhood and be together for the Thanksgiving holiday. And so they went to a cave system called the Nutty Putty Cave. And if you know anything about caving, I don't, but if you know anything, um, this cave system is infamous, primarily because... It's got lots of very narrow and tight passages. And I, I do what you want with your Sunday, but if you want to have your heart racing, you go look that up when you go home and watch some people climbing through these. It, it will it'll mess you up. Um, <laughs> it messed me up. Um, anyway, uh, among all of these very tight passages, there's one very famous one called the birth canal. <laughs> 
And for obvious reasons, when you get in the birth canal, rock is pressing against you very tight on all sides, and, and you don't crawl through it, you inch through it. And it's, it's a very long passage until you come out the other side. And, uh, and this guy, John Edwards Jones, comes to this tiny passage that he thought was the birth canal. And as he entered it, the rock pressed against him very hard like he thought it would. And he realized that at six feet and 200 pounds, he was not as small as he used to be in his childhood going through these passages. The birth canal was tighter than he remembered. And it's not only because he was larger than he used to be, but primarily because this passage wasn't actually the birth canal. This was a different passage. And so with great effort, he pushes his shoulders through this constricted aperture. He, with great effort, gets one arm through. And then he found that he could not move. And no amount of wiggling, no amount of force, no amount of struggling make any difference. He was stuck. He could not take a full breath. And he began to notice that his heart was under great duress in this position. And so he knew it was serious, and he begins calling for help. And his family eventually comes and finds him. They climb out of the caves quickly to go find some help. And there was John alone, trapped below the earth, unable to take a full breath, waiting for the help that he so desperately needed. Now... We've been going through the Gospel of Mark these last few months. And what we've been saying in countless different ways is that when Jesus showed up preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God, He showed up to show us what was the best kind of life. In fact, He was redefining for us that ancient concept of the good life. What makes for human flourishing. And at every point, we've been finding that Jesus' definition of the good life is almost the opposite of what ours would be in general. Life is found in death. Humility is the great triumph of life. You're blessed when you're cursed. Like th These are not the ways we think of flourishing, and yet this is how Jesus redefines for us where, where the good life is found. In today's teaching, we find that Jesus is going to push us to the limits of our understanding about the good life. We find a prosperous man coming to Jesus and asking him a very important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And frankly, this is the question of questions. Answering this question is why Jesus came to earth. Answering this question is why this church exists. Answering this question is why staff members and volunteers have been practicing and preparing for hours upon hours to make this moment happen. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All our efforts hinge on the hope that there is someone here asking that question. And maybe somebody's here listening like, that's me. Good. I'm glad you're here. This morning you shall have your answer, and it is a beautiful answer. So in order to answer this question, we're going to look at, number one, what Jesus did not say. Number two, what Jesus did say. 
and then at the end I'm going to apply it. So what did Jesus not say in response to this question? What he did say, and then we'll apply it at the end. So first, the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What Jesus did not say. Verse 17, he said, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, first of all, notice that this man, for all that we can tell, is very earnest about his question, right? Um, he wants to know how he can enter eternal life. This doesn't appear to be the same kind of question that we saw last week with the Pharisees who just wanted to test him, who just wanted to trap him in his words and uh, pro provide an occasion for his arrest. Um, they already knew the answer to their question. But this man, it says, runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and then honors him by asking him, addressing him as good teacher. There appears to be like reverence in this man's heart. Do you I mean, did you see it? He seems to revere Jesus enough to believe that he has the answer to this man's most pressing question. So he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is a magnificent question. And exactly the question that Jesus came to answer with his life. And it is a question that is most worth asking. And again, if you're here asking it, I'm so glad because we're going to answer it for you. It could be that your, your question, though, is phrased a little differently than this man's question. You see, like today, we're taught that, um, you know, at every level of our education, that life and all that exists is just the product of random collisions of atoms over a long period of time. And in randomness, there is no order. And your version of the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is, okay, yes, I believe everything is meaningless but why do I long for there to be meaning? Why doesn't, why doesn't it make sense to me that all is random, that all is chaotic? Why do I long for my life to mean something? Maybe that's the version of the question that you have. Or maybe the version uh, of the question that you have is similar to the man in this story. You grew up in the church, you know, you attended all the services, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you know, how, wherever the services were. Uh, you went to all the camps, you did all the Bible reading, you, you, and yet there's something like gnawing at you. And your version of the question is, have I done enough? So what is Jesus' answer? Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, if you've ever read the New Testament before, that is a very confusing answer. Because everywhere in the New Testament, and if you've been in this church for some time, it, that's a very confusing answer. How do I interpret or how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus, answer, keep the commandments. That's what he's saying. And I'm not going to like, I, I got nothing up the sleeves. I'm not going to pull out some weird interpretive trick to say that's not really what he's saying. That's really what he's saying. Keep the commandments if you would inherit eternal 
life. This is a legitimate teaching. If a person keeps the law of God, he or she will inherit eternal life. That is what you have earned. Jesus is teaching salvation by works here. So you can en- so so can you enter the kingdom of God by being a good person? Yes. And no one is more eligible than this guy right here that we're talking about. Now, I hope nobody leaves. There's more. There's more. Just, there's more. Nobody is in a better position than this man right here to receive salvation by works. Because listen, he says this. Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. So this man is a paragon of moral virtue. According to his own testimony, he has kept every part of the law since he was a youth, since he was old enough to understand what the law was and what a transgression of that law is. He says, all of these I have kept from my youth. And I have no reason to believe he's lying. Like, He is the definition of moral perfection. He has qualified for entry into God's kingdom by works. But if that's the case, my question is this. Why is he there asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life? Because he already knows the answer to the question. Keep the commandments. Done. Got it. The man knows the answer. He knows the perfection of his moral performance. Everything lines up. Why is he asking Jesus? The only thing that makes any sense out of it for me is that this man knew, despite the perfection of his outward moral performance, that there was a crack somewhere. He, he might not have been able to put his finger on it, but he knew. He knew there was something missing. There was a deep existential wrestling in this man. I'm a good man. I keep the law. Why then am I not sure that I will inherit eternal life? There's something in my guts that tells me that even though the outward record seems perfect, it's somehow not enough. And he's right. There is something missing. And Jesus tells him exactly what it is. Jesus puts his finger right on the crack and says, here it is. Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. That's it. That's the one thing. What is his response? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great Possessions. Now, 
This is the first time we're told that this man has great possessions. This is the first time we get a peek into his wealth. And Jesus says, sell it all, give it away, and you will have treasure in heaven. Now notice, he he doesn't even say that sell it all, give it to the poor, and you will never see it again. He says, sell it, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. He's not saying forsake comfort. He's only saying defer comfort. He's not saying you'll never see it again. But this was too much for the man. The request cut too deep. And we shouldn't judge this man too harshly. Um, For the wealthy, the thought of poverty is terrifying. Luxury, once tasted soon becomes a necessity. And the more access to luxuries that we have, the more, the more luxuries turn into, turn into necessities. And when Jesus comes and asks this man to forsake his wealth and follow him, he can't do it. It's like he's saying, you're, you're trying to take away bread and water and clothing from me. I can't. And now we're getting to the point. The first heading that we're considering is this. The man walked away sorrowful because of what Jesus did not say. You see, this man expected to ask Jesus' question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he expected to hear a response, something along the lines of what a coach might tell an accomplished athlete. I was remembering um, Clark's beautiful golf swing that we saw up here. Where, where are you at, Clark? Where are you at? Okay. Nowhere? There you are. I, I, don't, I know nothing about golf, but I'm sure it was beautiful. Um, it certainly didn't look ugly. Um, and I, I, was, I was thinking, okay, so suppose, suppose somebody with a swing like that wanted to, um, wanted to become perfect in their swing. Well, they might go to a coach, and, and the coach might, say, might look at the swing and say, oh, it is, it is almost perfect. All you need to do is you need to lift your head one half of a second earlier than you are lifting, and then everything will be fine. Everything will be perfect. You'll drive the ball down the fairway. Yeah, the fairway. <laughs> well, I don't know why I get myself into sports metaphors. I, I just end up embarrassing myself. Um, <laughs> um, and, and then all that you desire shall be yours. See, in other words... An athlete builds his or her skill along a certain track, right? First, you learn how to plant your feet. Then you learn how to breathe. Then you learn how to bring the club back. I have no idea if that's the actual, but you, get, you understand. Like the, Every skill builds upon the last one. It, it all goes in a certain line. And on and on and on. And there may be 10,000 stops on that track, but they all go in the same direction and they build upon the other. This is the kind of advice that the man was seeking. Like, look at my record. Look at all that I have done. I've spent my whole life building along this one track and I'm, I, just, I just need one more thing. I just need you to look at me, look at the swing and tell me where am I going wrong. Just one thing. That's what he's expecting. But Jesus does not say anything like what the man expects. Jesus tells this man something comparable to 
the professional athlete going to the guru coach, and the coach looks at his swing and says, that is almost perfect. But if you want to be perfect, you need to abandon your golf game and become a professional garbage man. To, to which he would say, what? That, that's not even on the track. That's not, I've been building one discrete moment after the other, and you're telling me I need to abandon the whole thing and go in a completely different direction? That's how absurd it would have sounded to this man. This rich man has been building his life all along one track for decades. And Jesus says, if it's eternal life that you want, none of that matters. Now, that might sound harsh. How can Jesus say to this man that all of his striving after goodness and moral rectitude means nothing? Well, first of all, Jesus didn't actually say that it meant nothing. I would, I'd be happy if everybody in our society was as good as this man. Crime would go down. It would be a much nicer place to live. I think our collective life would be far better than it is. But second, Jesus wasn't being dismissive of this man. He looked at him and he loved him. Nowhere else in the entire Gospel of Mark does it say that Jesus looked at someone and loved them. This was strong medicine for this man. And it's what love looked like for him. But, as we can see, he wanted neither the love nor the medicine that Jesus had to offer and he walked away from Jesus. And in walking away from Jesus, he, ironically, abandoned the great quest of his life, which is to inherit eternal life, the thing he had been working for from his youth. So all of us have this question in one form or the other. How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus here gives us the answer. Is he telling us the formula? Is this it? Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven? Is, we got the formula, guys. I, I actually don't think so. I don't think that this is a general answer or a general teaching or doctrine for all of God's people. I think this was for him alone. And not for all of us, and here's why. I think that for two reasons. Number one, all throughout the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul and Peter, you find lots of warnings against the dangers and the deceptions of wealth. But you never see this particular teaching repeated. The second reason is that we see that even Jesus doesn't apply it evenly. He goes to the house of Zacchaeus, if you remember, and Zacchaeus was also a very rich man, except he gained his riches through sinful means, through extortion, through bribery. This, this rich young man in our story, I'm assuming since he had kept all the commandments from his youth, got his wealth in a very righteous way. But Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house, this, this liar, this cheater, Zacchaeus is converted by the sheer majesty of Jesus, and Jesus says nothing about him giving his money away. He doesn't say, 
If anybody he should say it to, he should say it to Zacchaeus. You did not earn this money. But he doesn't say it to Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus gives it away voluntarily, but Jesus never commanded him to do it. So, I don't think Jesus is asking all of his followers to sell all that they have and give to the poor. But he does know how to put his finger on that one thing. That one thing without which we feel will fall apart, that our life is over without it. That one thing that we're not altogether sure that if we lost it, that Jesus is valuable enough to make up the cost. So that's what Jesus did not say. He did not give one more piece of advice along the, the long track of moral uprightness for this man. So number two, here's what Jesus did say. The question is still before us. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, here's the answer. Because so far all of this feels pretty bleak. I, maybe you don't feel it. The question is still lingering. Here's what he says, verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, at this point the man had already walked away, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? So Jesus begins by teaching us that the least likely people to inherit eternal life are the wealthy. Why is that? Because riches have a way of making the promises of eternal life. And in a way that sounds so believable, but it's actually unable to deliver it. In the accumulation of wealth, I think, I could have every comfort I ever wanted. If I had wealth, all would be well. All the troubles that I now have would pass away. Now, parentheses, money solves some problems. We know this. You don't have enough food on your table, money will solve that problem. You don't have clothes for your children, money will solve that problem. I agree, agree. I'm talking about excess wealth. We, we, we somehow believe that, it will, that if we had it, all would be well. Troubles I have would pass away. But the thing that is so deceptive and dangerous about these promises is that while they sound so believable, almost none of us get to actually test those promises out. And it's just the way the world works that, works that only a few of us will really gain a whole lot of wealth and be able to really test out the promises that wealth makes. And there sometimes there are a few people who are honest with the rest of us who have gained lots of wealth. And they tell us that even with all the money, they're still miserable. I mean, that's what the Apostle Paul told us. Those who pursue wealth pierce themselves with many pangs. That's just the way it goes. And they tell us that. There are sorrows that attend great wealth that the rest of us will never know. And surely one of the chief sorrows of wealth is that it promised us eternal life, but it could not deliver. It gave us comforts for sure. But there remains, even in all this wealth, a wrestling and an agony in my bones. 
and the great tragedy of those with great amounts of wealth is that it's almost impossible to forsake it. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, Jesus says, than for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's the tragedy of the wealthy. In tragic blindness to their own condition, they hold up the needle and they say, I think I can make it. I mean, I know it looks ridiculous, but I, they couldn't, but I can. Like, that's the tragedy of the wealthy. But Jesus does not confine his teaching to merely the wealthy. He actually extends it to all of us. See, the second time, um, after the disciples are amazed at this, Jesus says to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, like, it's just plain difficult for everybody, not just for the wealthy, for everyone. It's easy for us to believe that Jesus is clamping down on the few wealthy folks among us, but he's bringing all of us into view here because all of us have something inside of us, even if it's not the deception and danger of riches, that promises us that all shall be well apart from God. All of us have something that if Jesus were to come and put his finger on it and say, if you would inherit eternal life, this must go. We would recoil. And it may be that we would walk away sorrowful. The point is not, the point is, it's not just that riches puff a person up so that they are unable to pass through the eye of a needle. It's anything to which we entrust our lives. And the disciples ask the right question at this point. Who then can be saved? And here's where we get to what Jesus did say that is so powerful. Jesus looked at them, verse 27, and said, With man... It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I said earlier that one legitimate path to inheriting eternal life, to entering the kingdom of God, was keeping the law. But what Jesus is telling us here is that no one can actually accomplish that. We have a congenital defect in our spiritual hearts that will not allow us in mind, spirit, intention, heart to keep the law at all times and in all places. What God demands is perfection under the law. And even this man who comes to Jesus who had kept the law outwardly for his whole life had one glaring flaw seen only by the eyes of Christ that when it was exposed, caused the entirety of the moral house he had built to crumble to the ground in an instant. No one is righteous in the eyes of God under the moral law. And yet we pine for eternal life. We pine 
for the kingdom of God. We long to see the face of God turn towards us, not with a frowning countenance, but with joy, with love, with welcome. And what Jesus is teaching us here is that eternal life is not had by works of the law, but by grace, by mercy, by forgiveness of sins. What is, dis- listen, what is decisive in, in entering the kingdom of God, in attaining eternal life, is not the work of men and women. What is decisive is the work of God. And what is the work of God? Well, I said it earlier, that we cannot enter the kingdom of God by keeping the law. So what's the alternative? That God simply allows the blatant and gross violation of his law, the violation of his justice, and we come to his judgment seat and he's like, ah, mercy, grace. No, what kind of what kind of society would we live in if that's how judges treated justice? If a criminal came before a judge and the judge said, I'll have mercy on you, just go and sin no more, it's fine. It would be a society full of crime, full of insecurity, full of 17 bolts on our doors in which none of us would feel safe. But there is another way. From the beginning of the constitution of God's people, he provided for them a system of substitution. The wages of sin is death. Anyone who sins has earned for themselves death. But God so loved his people that instead of visiting judgment and death upon their heads as they deserved, he told them, bring me a lamb, spotless, unblemished, and kill it before me. And when they did this, two things simultaneously occurred. One is that the sinfulness of the person was transferred onto the sacrifice. The lamb bore the judgment in my place. The blood on the ground should be mine. And that's part of God's mercy because he loves you because he wants you to live, he accepted the lamb's death as a substitute for yours. But the second thing that happens in that transaction has to do with the perfection of the lamb. God was emphatic. This lamb had to be spotless. No chipped hooves, no spots on the wool, no discoloration, no deformities. Perfection. Then the sacrifice, the second part of God's mercy, is that while the treachery and death is given to this perfect lamb, God accepts the perfection of the lamb as my own perfection in his eyes. It is, <laughs> it is an astonishing transfer. So hear me clearly. The answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life is this. There is no amount of moral capital that you can bring to this transaction to earn eternal life. 
Eternal life for you and for me and for anyone who really desires it is dependent on the work of another. Jesus Christ, our substitute. He kept the law in our place and he did it perfectly. No spot, no wrinkle, no deformity, no blemish, perfect record under the law. And don't you remember (laughs) that Jesus himself went through the exact same trial that he put this rich young man through? The night before his death, he was bent over in agony. Great drops of blood mingling with his sweat. Why? Because the father put his finger on the one thing that was most precious to Jesus, namely, his own relationship with his father. And he said, if they would enter the kingdom, you must forsake this. And Jesus, in his agony, said, anything but that. Let this cup pass from me. But the astonishing miracle of grace is that Jesus did not walk away from that decisive moment sorrowful. In that moment, he looked at you. And he loved you. And he bowed his head and he straightened his legs and he said, not my will, but yours be done. And when we accompany him to the cross, we see blood pouring from his wounds. It is a judgment that should have been ours. And his perfection in God's eyes, the blessing of eternal life that he earned in that moment was transferred to us, to all who believe in his name and his saving death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. This is how we inherit eternal life. Praise be to God. Now let's take a couple minutes here. What use can we make out of this? What kind of application can we make? There are two brief applications of this teaching I think we need to leave with. The first is for the people who are still asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You're not yet a Christian. And even now, it may be that you, you feel cornered, like, like the finger is on that thing that is most valuable to you. It may not be your wealth, and I don't know what it is. Maybe nobody knows what it is, but you do. And Jesus, more importantly, knows You feel that it's the last remaining tower standing in the kingdom that you have so meticulously built for yourself. And you hear Christ saying to you this morning, you must forsake all and follow me, but you're not sure. There's a whisper in your ear, and it says, you could fit through that needle. You could do it. 
Nobody else has been able to, but, but you can. So for your sake, let me finish the story that I started at the beginning of the sermon. I wish I could tell you that the story of John Edwards Jones is a comedy. And that after 28 hours of attempts to rescue him, that he was released from his rocky prison and carried back up to the outside world. But his story is not a comedy. It is, in fact, a tragedy. After 28 hours of attempted rescue, Jones's heart failed him at 26 years old, and he died of a cardiac arrest. The rescuers knew that they could not get him out, even in death, and so with the family's consent, the authorities sealed Nutty Putty Cave with a concrete plug, and John Edwards Jones remains there to this day. And as I read this story, I, I hope you will allow it to contradict that voice in your ear. You look at the opening to the kingdom, and it looks tight, and you think, I can make it. I can keep all that I've worked so hard for in my life and still enter and still make it through. Jesus cannot make his teaching any more plain for you. You cannot. You cannot make it through under those conditions. Your perception is distorted. You are the size of a camel. The entrance is the size of a needle. If you try to wiggle your way through, it will only mean your demise. But what you can this is the good news, what you cannot do for yourself, Jesus did for you. All you must do is trust him. All that you forsake now, you will find, he teaches, in spades, both in this life, yes, with persecutions, but also without persecutions in the next life, in the life to come. In that day, you will enjoy all you left behind without tears, without wrestling, without agony, without confusion, without doubt, without that gnawing sense of incompletion, but only with joy eternal and joy abundant. Jesus offers you eternal life now, so cease your striving and receive his great gift. Second application is for those of us who are Christians. Jesus is teaching us that the decisive action in our inclusion in his family does not belong to us. It belongs to him. And I think that should provide us with a sense of rest. And so often we find ourselves shaky and unsure. Are we, are we really in the family? Does the kingdom of God really belong to us? Are my sins really forgiven that's the question of the rich young man. That, that is not our question. That's the question of someone who is relying on their own record of righteousness for the inheritance of the kingdom. And when that happens, of course you feel shaky. Of course you doubt your salvation. Your record, like mine, is the worst. 
But through this teaching, Jesus is calling you back home to assurance. It is his work, not yours, that matters. It's Christ's work, not yours, which will be read aloud when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if that's the case, my brothers and sisters, you are free to rest. All of us are free to rest from our ceaseless striving because the work has been done and all is well. Now, it's time for us to come to the table. The door to the kingdom of God is smaller than you can ever imagine. The work of Christ is to reduce us to the size so that we are capable of entering it. Therefore, this table is a place where we come to be reduced. Those of us who are puffed up in our accomplishments, this table cuts our pride away because it reminds us that all is grace and we have nothing that we have not been given. There are others of us who come to this table not in pride, but in despair. You look at the wreckage of your life and you believe that you've ruined everything beyond repair. But that also is pride. You believe that your actions are beyond repair, that you've extended yourself beyond the finished work of Christ. The table is here to reduce you as well. Your despair is not the last note in the song. And so by now, I hope it's clear that the confession of this table is the confession of John the Baptist. He must increase, and I must decrease. And so if that is the desire of your heart, then you are most welcome at this table. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, there's nothing that we can do without you. There's nowhere else we can go except Jesus Christ to find the words of eternal life. We should know by now, we should know by this point in our lives that every other well is dry, every other tree is fruitless, every other avenue is a dead end and full of dangers. But Father, you know us. You know that we keep going off in the wrong directions. And so we thank you that there is a wideness to your mercy. You never cease to pursue us. You never cease to remind us the work of Christ is finished on our behalf. And oh, how we need it. So we love you. And we pray that you would minister, us, minister to us now in the bread and the cup. It is in Jesus' name that we pray and all God's people said, you're welcome to come.